will be on page 810. We're continuing our study as a church in the book of Matthew, working our way ever so slowly through the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. Again, that's page 810 in your pew Bible. Or if you want to follow along on the screen with us. Jesus said to his disciples who were gathered there with him on that mountain, said, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. You may be seated. Fathers, we look this morning to the word that you have given us to the righteousness that you have revealed to us in your word. I pray that two things would happen for us this morning. One, we would realize your holiness and your might, your transcendence above us. And Father, I ask that we would also realize the depth of our sin this morning. how desperately far away from you we are. In coming to that realization by the power of your spirit, let us look to Jesus Christ, our salvation this morning, and receive the mercy that you give us. And let our hearts be turned not to mourning, because of our desperation, but to praise because of your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you go into the emergency department at any local hospital, you're going to see a lot of different things, aren't you? Some people aren't sick at all. They have a cold like I do right now. But you're also going to see a lot of severe types of injuries, if you go to the back where that, that driveway is that says ambulances only and you go to the doors where those guys come in coming in the double doors you may see a man on a stretcher being rushed in by, by the medics find out he was in a car crash and you have to turn your eyes from him because of the amount of blood that you see and it's unsettling to you it's disturbing to you he has a gash in his head half of his face is so gnarled and swollen that he hardly looks human to you anymore his right arm and leg are mangled and crushed and they're bent and, they, and they're dangling in directions that you know that those body parts are not meant to dangle you look at this man and what do you think you think he's going to die 
And then coming through the doors right behind him, medics are pushing a man who looks actually pretty put together. No blood, there's no bruises, no broken bones. His, his face is a little pale and he's grimacing, but he's conscious, he's conscious, rather, he's, he's clean. And he has all of his body parts. And from what you can see, he's going to be okay. But what you can't see is that he has a, a heart disease that he won't survive. He was a little dizzy at work and he, and he had to sit down and then he passed out. His co-workers called 911 and by the time he's in the hospital, by the time he is laid on that operating table, the aneurysm in his aorta will have broken open and he'll bled out from the inside and he'll have died. One man was visibly dying when you saw him. The other was dying internally. But both were fatally injured. What Jesus wants us to see from our text this morning is that adultery, the the physical act of taking someone that is not your spouse, it's a car crash. It leads to very, very, very visible injuries, doesn't it? Marriages are destroyed. The relationships between parents and kids are ruined. There are financial costs. There are emotional costs. Many of your friendships will be hurt. Worse still, your, your Christian witness is, is stained forever. An adulterous affair is a wreck. And there are very real, very visible consequences. But just as deadly... Just as deadly as adultery is the invisible, secret desire to have someone who is not yours. Someone you are not in in marriage covenant with. That desire springs out from a heart that is desperately sick. A heart that is not satisfied in Christ. And a heart that will die just the same as the man in the wreck. The whole point of what Jesus is saying here is that sin is not just external, it's internal. It comes from inside of us. And because it springs from within, we must go to great lengths to cut it off, to put it to death. You remember when we studied Colossians together as a church? Some of you weren't here yet, but as a congregation, we look through Paul's letter to the Colossian church. fighting a cold you'll have to bear with me this morning and we saw Paul give a similar instruction to what Christ gives in chapter 3 of Colossians Paul told us that because we have died to ourselves and our life is hidden in Christ then we must put to death the sin that is in us what's fascinating is how closely Paul's words echo what Christ has said Paul said in Colossians 3 5 Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. See how similar Jesus' instruction is? He tells us that adulterous actions come from adulterous eyes, from lustful eyes. And then he says, pluck out the eye. 
cut off the arm. That is, whatever is a part of you that is leading you to sin, disable it. Get rid of it. Put to death what is earthly in you. Why, why does he say this? Is it, what we're, the sermon, our sermon today is yay long. Jesus' was like four verses. He gets through it very qu- quickly. And the reason why he says to put it to death or to get rid of it is because what is earthly in us, what belongs to our old nature, is destructive. It is damnable. It leads to hell. So what do we do about it? Right? That's the rest of the sermon. We can all recognize that this is a problem that must be dealt with in some way, but how? Well, there are two ways that we can combat sin. Two ways. The first is to simply create structures that help us avoid sinful acts. This method involves recognizing what all of the outward sins are and then doing whatever you can to avoid them. Okay? So, so take murder, for instance. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. I probably need that. Take, take murder. We talked about murder a few weeks ago. It's been a few weeks since I was in the pulpit. Someone can take the sin of murder and create safeguards around his life that prevent him from murdering people. So if I want to avoid murder, I could get rid of all my guns and all my knives and all my wrenches and ropes and candlesticks. If we're playing Clue, that's a Clue reference. I I could intentionally stay miles away from people that I don't like. And if I begin to feel myself getting angry about anything, what could I do? Well, I could just walk away from the situation. I could choose to live in a country where there are severe consequences for murder. That, that's a, a deterrent. So if I want to avoid the sin of murder, I could set up boundaries to prevent myself from murdering people. If I want to avoid adultery, I can do the same thing. Don't spend time with women who are not my wife. Don't go to strip clubs. Don't pick up prostitutes. All I have to do is put up barriers around these sins and I can avoid them. Anybody can do this. You don't have to be a Christian to do this. A self-disciplined atheist can avoid adultery if he chooses to. He can, he can put structures in his life that, that can prevent that action without even believing that there is a God. Other religions have ways of dealing with this. A devout Muslim can avoid adultery. Think about traditional Islam. Women wear a veil over their face a covering over their head, a loose-fitting, covering, baggy clothes over their body. They, they don't walk beside men. They don't talk to men who are not related to them. When Susan and I were in, in Dubai, there was a commuter train specifically for women and children, and one specifically for men. Keep them separate. Why? Well, one, to protect the dignity of the women, something that we often fail to do, but, but also, these traditions, these laws, act as a fence to adulterous sin, don't they? The, the idea is that if you set the fences far enough away from the sin you're trying to prevent, then even if you get past one fence, you have to deal with the next one, and then the next one, the next one. 
And, and, and hopefully you'll be reminded at some point this isn't worth the effort. And you avoid the, the, the core sin issue that they're trying to prevent. Cultures put fences around particularly heinous sins or the ones that they describe or they would determine as heinous to keep people away from them. Old-time Christian fundamentalism was this way. Still is in many places. Want to avoid drunkenness? Don't take the first drink. Want to avoid greed? Don't go to casinos. Want to avoid fornication? No dancing. Want to avoid gluttony? Don't go to buffets. Well, they wouldn't say that, but I would. (laughs) Many of us are very, very, very good at avoiding these these outward sins. At least the sins we want to avoid. Or or the, the shameful sins that our culture disapproves of. And the point is that anybody can do it. You just have to be strict and disciplined enough. The problem with this should be clear by now. Avoiding sins is not enough to make us righteous. You you cannot reach the standard of righteousness that God demands, the, the standard that Christ describes here. You can't get right with God by external action alone. Or at all. In fact, I think that's part of the point that Jesus is making with his instruction about eyes and hands here. There's multiple meanings. You you can go to great lengths to avoid sin. You can cut out your right eye. You can cut off your right hand. Well, what's the problem? Look at verse 28. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So cut out your right eye. And you'd still have a left eye, wouldn't you? And that eye can still look at someone with lustful intent. It'd be creepy, but you could do it. And then, and then cut out that eye too. So now you have no eyes. So cut out your left eye too, and you still have your memories. You still have your imagination. The heart can sin without the eyes. What else could we do? We could cut ourselves off from all human interaction. We can move out to a cave in the desert with no one else around us for hundreds of miles. Is that a big enough fence to prevent sin? It's not. So long as we have hearts that produce ungodly desires, we will be guilty of sin. So while, while we can use human efforts to protect ourselves from outward sin, we cannot protect ourselves from the sinful desires of our hearts. We're born with those. No human means can prevent these sins. Which is to say, no religion can deal with this issue. And so the first method, what we call the legalistic method or the religious method or the fence-building method of avoiding sin, 
it's useless, isn't it? It's useless. Sure, it may help us appear righteous before people. It may help us feel more righteous about ourselves, but it cannot make us righteous before God. It's bailing out a sinking ship with a thimble. So so even even the hardest working, most sincere believer, the the strictest follower of any form of, of legalism is still going to die and go to hell. Not because of his external goodness, but because of his internal wickedness, his heart disease. There's another way. There's another way to deal with sin. It's it's a way that not only deals with the outward sins, like adultery, but also the root sins of the heart, the true source of our guilt before God. C.S. Lewis captures this beautifully in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Have you read this book? Please say yes. (laughs) It's a signed reading if you haven't. Eustace, whose name means justice, or righteousness in Latin. He's this awful character at the beginning of the book. He's a complainer. He's a coward. He's greedy. He's selfish. He's a manipulator. In every way, he's the exact opposite of what his name implies. And there's this point in the story when his, his greed leads him along this path where, where he becomes a dragon. He became externally what the nature of his heart was projecting. When he he wakes up as his new dragon self, he's confronted with a sharp pain in his arm that doesn't go away. In his pain, in his sadness, he's, he's approached by Aslan, the lion, who takes him up a mountain to a garden. And there's this well in the middle of the garden. Eustace looks into the well and he he just has this craving to get in because he knows that if he can get in that water it will ease his pain but he's told he cannot get in because of his dragonness so he what does he do? he claws at himself he claws at himself with his own efforts he attempts to peel off dragon skin And layer after layer is removed. But every time he removes one layer of dragon, there's another layer of dragon right underneath that. And he's just the same as when he started. And he begins to realize that the uselessness of his work to make himself right. Finally, Aslan, who's been watching Eustace's attempts to... to bring about his own righteousness he comes to the dragon boy and with the tip of his nail sharp claw he pierces the boy's dragon heart and he peels off the dragon nature as if from the inside out and then he's a boy what's the point here well our heart disease is so deep so deep that if we live an outwardly moral life we never commit adultery we'll still stand condemned before God what God requires is a whole self 
type of righteousness. A righteousness that runs deep all the way to the heart and then springs out from the heart and runs through our lives. Jesus is that righteousness, friends. He is the fulfillment of the law, the embodiment of the righteousness of God. And here's the good news. His righteousness can be our righteousness. And because we can have his righteousness, we can also have his sonship, his relationship to the Father. To receive Christ means to to do what? To die to ourselves, to die to all of our own efforts at a man-made righteousness and trust that his righteousness makes us holy before God. That's what faith is. But then Christianity does not stop there. It begins there. It's what we call the new birth. But after being born again, the rest of the life of the Christian is simply learning how to live in Christ's righteousness. How to walk in Christ's righteousness. 1 Peter 2.24 puts it this way. Peter says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. How by his wounds you have been healed. We have the ability to live to righteousness because of what Christ has done. Not only are we forgiven, made right before God, but we can live righteously before God. Remember, this righteousness that we can live in because of Christ's work, it is a whole self type of righteousness. It isn't just external. It goes all the way to our dragon hearts and replaces our hearts. It replaces our affections, our desires. And then you know what happens? It flows out from our hearts. And here's the thing with that righteousness. In Christ, we really and truly can live in such a way that we don't look at others with lust in our hearts. We don't see them as objects of desire, but as image bearers of God. We see them the way that Christ sees them. In Christ, we can live so satisfied in what God has given us that we don't have these toxic desires for women or, or men that are not our spouses. In Christ, because we have the Spirit operating in our lives, we can have friendships with people of the opposite sex without wanting to go to bed with them. We, we can go to the beach without our head being on a swivel. We can truly love people as Christ loves them without lustfully desiring them. How? How is that possible? Because in Christ, we have desires that come from the Spirit and not from our flesh. This doesn't happen by itself, though. This is a process. We receive the Spirit. We're justified before God. That means we, we are made right before God when we receive Christ. But then we intentionally have to submit to the Spirit's desires rather than our old desires. As we practice this, 
the Spirit's desires in our lives become louder, more dominant. But it takes time. It takes effort. Over and over again in the New Testament, we're confronted with this reality that we have been forgiven in Christ. That's the grace we stand in. We have been forgiven in Christ. We have been made new in Christ. But now, what do we do? We must walk in Christ. Or walk in the Spirit. Or put on Christ. Or put on new self. Set our minds on Christ. Live according to Christ. There's so many different ways that the New Testament writers describe this new reality for us. And at the same time, we're told to put off our old self to put off the desires of the flesh to put to death the desires of the flesh to not be conformed to the world to not love the world or give in to the desires of the flesh so so there's there's a, a, a volitionality there's a intentionality here isn't there a deliberate work something we must do in order to grow in Christ-likeness. For this transformation to take place, where our desires, our old desires, are replaced with the Spirit's desires, we have to work at it. And as that happens, there's gradually this new nature that begins to unfold in you. We complain less than we used to. We become less frustrated with others. We're more compassionate towards others. We're we're more honoring to others. We're less envious of them. And even the deep-seated lusts of our heart are rooted out. It's not by magic. It takes work. A work that is only possible in the life of one who has received Christ. So with the rest of our time this morning, we're going to work on the sin of lust. And we're going to look at some practical helps at rooting out this sin from our lives. Well, The first thing we must do is we have to understand what lust is. Right? You can't avoid poison ivy in the woods if you do not know what it looks like. So what are the characteristics of this poison plant? What are the characteristics of lust? How can we recognize it? One author, and I appreciate the way he he puts it, he defines lust as a desire that is untethered from the purifying effects of Christ. That sounds kind of complicated, but it's precise language, and I like precision. Remember this, Christ has purified you. He's made you new. And yet, there are desires that you will have what we call remnant desires, vestiges of the flesh that you need to recognize as outside of what Christ is doing in you. There's a couple ways to describe this. One, it could be a desire that is simply wrongly directed. So if you're married, it is good to desire your spouse. Your, you, you desire physical and emotional nearness to your spouse intimacy with your spouse. That is a rightly oriented desire. God has designed marriage and he has designed you with desires 
that can only be rightly fulfilled in marriage. But that same desire for intimacy can be wrongly oriented. See what I'm saying? That desire for your spouse can can be directed somewhere else, towards someone else who is not your spouse. Someone you are not in lifetime covenant commitment with. If that's the case, it's lust. Leaves of three, let it be. Lust can also be a good desire that has grown disproportionate to its object. It's gotten out of control. Right? There, there, there's a right affection. Think of this. There's a right affection that we can have towards a Christian brother or sister of the opposite sex. We can enjoy our time with them. We can be edified by them, encouraged by them. We can miss them when we're away from them. But we can also become so emotionally close to them that we begin to want more from that relationship than what it is meant for. And when that happens, a God-honoring, mutually edifying relationship has become marred by the flesh. Right, that, that, that good desire has become disproportionate to the object. Dating can be this way too. There is a way, there is, a, a way for a, a Christian to date another Christian that keeps in proportion the desires. A Christian man should be attracted to the Christian woman he's dating. Something about her should draw him toward her. He should see her character, her faith, even, yes, even her physical appearance as magnetic. He should be drawn to her. That's okay. It's not wrong, but but there's a point where that attraction is distorted by the flesh and he begins to want her in a way that is objective. He, He ceases to see her as a sister in Christ someone to be honored, someone to be protected, someone to be guarded for marriage, and what happens instead? He sees her as someone for his own possession. And consumed. That's lust. It's a disproportionate desire. The desire for marriage is good. The desire to have her as his own outside of covenant commitment, outside of marriage, That's lust. Berries of white. But understanding what lust is isn't enough to root it out of your life. You can't recognize it and it goes away. Knowing what it is, we must actively work to avoid it. So that's step two. Avoid it. That's Jesus' instruction, isn't it? we look at it if your eye causes you to sin gouge it out if your hand causes you to sin cut it off that instruction has two meanings we talked about the first already there's a sense of absurdity to it right if if you get rid of the right eye you still have the left eye but there is a truth there that we need to recognize sin even sins of the heart where nobody gets hurt Nobody's defrauded, nobody's harmed, nobody's cheated. Sins like lust are serious sins. They separate us from God. 
They are condemnable offenses. Jesus' whole point of this four-verse paragraph is that we can go to hell for looking at someone with lust in our hearts. Do not miss the weight of that. And don't think, well, Dustin, you're talking about hell too much. Jesus talks about hell twice as much as he talks about heaven. So we should not shy away from something that Jesus, with full force, spoke plainly about. In the parable of the soils, Jesus says that for some people, they'll hear the gospel. And it seems like they've received the gospel. But over time, worldly desires, he uses that word, desires, lusts, they choke out the gospel in their lives. The gospel proves unfruitful in that person's life because of these lusts. So this is serious. Lust is dangerous. Dangerous enough that we must be willing to go to great lengths to avoid it. In Romans 13, 14, Paul gives us instruction in this. He says, Put on the Lord Jesus and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Put on the Lord Jesus. What does that mean? Let your identity be in Christ. That's really important. That's who you are. That's shorthand for remember that you have died to yourself and been raised to new life in Christ. Put on the Lord Jesus. And is that enough to avoid sin, though? It's not. What does he say we must also do? Even having been made new in Christ, even finding our identity in Christ, we will still live with temptations of the flesh. So how do we, what do we do? He says, make no provision for the flesh. That's an instruction for us. Take that to heart. So then, how, Paul? How do we make no provision for the flesh? Well, in our case, as we're talking about today, how do we make no provision for lustful desires? There's thousands of things we could do, aren't there? It just depends on the situation that you're in. I'll just give a few really practical, practical things that all come from this big principle. Wherever you recognize the flesh being provisioned or, or fed, stop feeding it. That's his point. So I'm going to list off a few practical things. Married couples, go to bed at the same time. If it's your habit that wife goes to bed at 10 and husband goes to bed at 1 a.m., what is happening in those three hours where you are separated from one another unnecessarily. Provision for the flesh. Lots of it. Go to bed at the same time. Simple. Other ways that we can not give provision to the flesh. If there are times of day when you are consistently alone and your mind begins to wander towards temptation, do something else with that time instead. Go to the gym. Go for a run or a walk. Go visit somebody in the church. Go visit one of our homebound people. Go to a coffee shop. Go to a grocery store. Don't be alone. 
do something besides being alone and making provision for the flesh. If the internet is a problem source in your home, get rid of the internet in your home. You will survive. Better to see one less cat video. Better for your pretend digital farm to go unattended than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If it's your smartphone that's a problem, get a dumb phone. Uh, Avoid, this is women, this isn't just a male issue. Women, avoid pornographic romance novels. Even the Christian ones. If reading about some perfect, broad-shouldered Amish farm husband causes you to be dissatisfied with the imperfect, broad-bellied husband (laughs) that God has given you. Or if you're single and you're reading these books and it calls you to be dissatisfied in Christ, what do you do? Well, that book is grooming and feeding a dragon in your heart. Get rid of it. It's not well written anyway. Avoid movies and TV shows and video games with sex or nudity in them. You will not be missing out on anything. No one ever died because they didn't see whatever new HBO show was coming out. Make no provision for the flesh. But all of those efforts can only go so far, can't they? Like step two only takes us so far. If your heart is like a room... And the desires of the flesh are like dark corners in that room. You can stay away from those dark corners. You can avoid them. But here's something you need to know about darkness. It grows. That darkness will creep into the rest of the room. Eventually, even some innocuous things will become a source of lustful thoughts. Ultimately, the only way to get rid of these desires is step three bring light into the room the light produces in us the good rightly oriented desires that replace the old desires that's necessary what's the source of the light it's jesus right step step three is only possible for someone who has received christ in faith but even having received christ we need to understand that he he operates through various means in our lives, what we call means of grace. For one, he speaks through his word, the Bible. Psalm 119, 9 through 16. Young men memorize this. Psalm 119, 9 through 16. How can a young man keep his way pure? Good question. Well, the psalmist tells us, by guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. To shed light into the dark recesses in our lives, we must be hearing from Christ in his word constantly. Constantly. 
Take the word. Study it. Meditate on it. Memorize it. Hear it taught. Hear it preached. Read books about the Bible. Let it just be always present in your life. Let the word of God be present in you. Not just externally to you. And when you look to God's word, concentrate especially on those parts of scripture that remind you of the truth of the gospel. What has Christ done for you? What has he accomplished in your life? What is true about you in Christ that was not true before you received Christ? 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says this, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The knowledge of the glory of God in Christ is everything that Scripture reveals about Christ. And the Spirit applies to our lives. Take a hold of those truths and set them as as bright burning lamps in your heart. And as you grow in your understanding of what Christ has accomplished, you know what happens? You begin to love him more. I guarantee it. It is impossible to meditate on God's word and to, to take it for what it is as Christ has revealed himself and not grow in your love for Jesus Christ. And as you begin to love him more, your desires, like little flecks of iron organizing themselves around the north pole of a magnet, your desires will become rightly oriented. Secondly, because Jesus manifests himself among us through the Spirit, and the Spirit is made manifest in the church, well, be with the church then. Look what 1 Corinthians twelve seven says. To each, that's to each Christian in a local body, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. It means this. Your brother in Christ or your sister in Christ is a source of spiritual encouragement to you and you for them. The Spirit has been given to you and the Spirit has been given to them. Not just for your own, me and Jesus, individual transformation. But for mutual edification. The church is built up in Christ's likeness by being present with one another. Because when we're present with one another, what are we supposed to be doing as a church? Think about it. We're confessing sin to one another, right? We're teaching one another. We are taking part in the Lord's table together, as we will in a couple weeks. We are singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another. Think about it. When you sing this, all I have is Christ, you are confessing that all you need, all you have is found in Christ. And that truth sung with other brothers and sisters is a source of good desires in your life. You can't sing that and at the same time be giving in to lustful thoughts. You can't. Because what are you doing? You're confessing that everything you have is Jesus Christ. 
and you are without nothing. You're lacking nothing. And so you don't desire other things. What else happens in Christian community, in the church? Well, having confessed sin to one another, as we're to do, we're restoring one another in gentleness, as Paul says in Galatians 6. Brothers and sisters are walking alongside those who are caught in sin or who are struggling with sin, and they bring them along, along in faith. That's why God's given you one another. The community of believers is necessarily the place where you grow in Christ, the place where your desires are being transformed, the place where the light of Christ is to shine brightest into our lives because we have submitted to one another and we trust them enough to speak God's word into our lives. Finally, having recognized lust, having gone to great lengths to avoid it, having sought Christ in his word and made ourselves vulnerable to other believers, there's one last thing I want to share with you. Pray. Pray. The Lord is near to us in our prayers. When we pray, when we cry out to God to help us when we are being tempted, we are reassured by the Spirit of our adoption in Christ. And what's more, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Romans 8.27 says, The Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And, and it is God's will that the desires of your hearts be transformed. And He's changing the desires of our hearts from fleshly, worldly, lustful desires, and he's recreating our desires to reflect his own. So listen, as we are brought into the kingdom of heaven that Jesus has been teaching us about, we are received and we're welcomed and we're loved by the king. He's forgiven us. Right? We are made clean. We are made pure before him. We have the privilege of living in his kingdom. That's good news. You are there if you're a Christian. But as we live and mature in the kingdom of heaven, something else should be expected to happen. As we grow more and more satisfied with our king's gracious, merciful rule in our lives, we also begin to want the same things that he wants. We, we begin to, to be disturbed by the same things that disturb him. Our hearts grow in alignment with his. And these issues of the heart are no more. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, I know this morning that's one thing to, to, to talk about the truths that your word presents to us in a whole separate thing to let those truths be real in our lives. We know and we confess this morning that there are dozens of people here who are gathered with us, our brothers and sisters in Christ, who struggle in this very area 
So I ask this morning that we as a church would be a church where healing can take place. That we would not be so proud and so externally righteous that we lack the ability to confess sin. That we lack the ability to walk alongside our brothers and sisters in Christ who are stuck in sin. We know that that type of of, of community only happens with the presence of your Spirit working in us. The, The manifestation of your Spirit through the gifts of the church. We ask that that would happen. That relationships here would would grow deeper 